Magic Numbers. This is episode number 99 and today we're going to be talking about drafting in Lost Cavern of Ixalan, but specifically about what does drafting the right way mean, at least according to the data. But before we move into that, I would like to thank all my patrons. Uh, I have a new patron this uh, time, uh, so thank you Brian Damien for uh, joining the team. Um, also, uh, I would like to thank my sponsor, mtgazon.com. I started writing articles and this part is going to be definitely written down as an article uh, on how to uh, diagnose your weaknesses and strength as a drafter using some uh, rudimentary data. Um, and yeah, with that out of the way, we can move to our preamble. And today's preamble is going to be linked to um, it's going to be linked to the main topic, and it's about data analysis. And that you know, some of the data analysis is relatively straightforward. If I'm talking about win rates. I'm talking about which cards are good in a particular deck. I go to 17 lands, I fish this data out, and uh, I can talk about it for hours, as you probably well know. But some analyze, analyses are complicated and they take time. And especially the ones where you don't have an idea what you're doing will take time. So the idea for today's seminar, I had it first maybe two years ago, and I have no idea. I had no idea what to do with it. I knew that there is something in it, and I had no idea what to do with it whatsoever. Then, roughly eight months ago, I re-had the same idea. I knew that I had it before, but I just like it returned to me all of a sudden um, when I was looking through uh, 17 lens data. And I planned even like a guest episode when I could invite two guests and basically try to talk with them uh, to figure out what's going on with this idea that I had. But I, of course, uh, I didn't follow up with that. It was hard. Uh, people that were involved were not content creators. It was difficult to organize. Didn't work. And I didn't forget my idea. I was just continuously looking for inspiration on finding that in a, like one moment when something will click to me. And actually, it did during the stream, during the, during the running of the seminar. Um, this idea clicked to me uh, midway of a sentence. You can hear maybe a slight pause when I actually come up with that. I didn't run out uh, on the streets of uh, Syracuse naked um, uh, screaming Eureka. I was just uh, continuing with my stream, but the idea was firmly there at that particular moment. And since then I was working on it because I thought it would be a perfect thing to do when the format quiets down a bit and when I can analyze uh, some extra data and, and think about it more and materialize the whole content around it. But it is something for if you are planning to do anything on data in magic which i highly encourage of course that some of the ideas that you're going to have the good ones especially and the ones that are the more universal ones are not going to be routine these are things that happen you know once or twice a year that you have a really I'm a, let, let let you be the judge of that if it's a good idea or not but uh if it's really something that is worth um dedicating uh, additional effort to. and you know i did a couple of analyses that i was quite proud of some of them probably no one knows about. I'm still proud of them. Um, I think that they added something, um, especially things linking, like we're going to see later today, linking Alsa and Wheeling and, and how you can basically very simply extract the Wheeling data from 17 lands um, by looking at Alsa. That's something I'm quite proud of. Um, some things around signal sending and, and, and the impact of those signals. I'm quite proud of that. But all those analyses, they took time. And uh, in some cases, I ran them maybe four or five times before I was actually happy with the end result. So um, just um, um, just to you know 
give you the idea of what it takes to analyze data that is linked to magic. Sometimes you can't just run it on, 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 on fast burner and spew out uh, good ideas every day, and you have to accept that fact and, and, and just live with it. All right, with that out of the way, we can move to the first topic of the seminar, and that's going to be the draft data. Um, it's been released in the public data sets. I'm waiting now every single time for the public data sets to be released. I, um, I decided it's not a fair advantage if I uh, ask 17 Lens to give me the data earlier. Um, and also, it doesn't put them in the awkward situation when they will have to decide whether to give me the data early or treat me like everyone else, which I should, which I think they should do. So I'm just waiting patiently for the data to be released before I start with the analysis. But luckily, the draft data is out, so I can look at um, I can look at some of the findings uh, and show them to you today. Uh, we're going to look how uh, picks will uh, impact win rates. It's important to know which cards to force. So I'm going to look a bit about what are the most important first picks um, and which cards are not worth first picking. Also um, uh, important to know. And which cards you can reliably wield. That's going to be uh, probably the bigger fo focus of the, of the seminar. Honestly, the data from draft this time around, uh, I tried some new things and they completely didn't work. Um, one idea I had, and this is another thing that you have from working with data. One idea I had was looking at win rate of a card depending on when it was picked in the first pack. And there are some cards that actually show some signal, but I just was not convinced that that signal is not some kind of noise uh, and it's real. Uh, so I decided to scrap that whole segment and um, uh, that's where we are. But luckily, I also have the second part of the seminar when we can work out my hypothesis and then maybe learn something uh, around that. Um, so first things. Um, in every format, I try to look at the cards that go very differently in pack three and in pack one and look at their, uh, at their ALSA. So here we have a graph with um, cards that go much later in pack three. And that's why it's called rewards in pack three. And in every single format, when I look at those cards that go late in pack three, we see the same trend. And, and it's not different here. Captain Storm, Nikan Zil, Deep Fathom Echo, uh, Zoyova Lavatong, Molten Collapse, Kutsil, Akawali, Kaparokti, Isquint, Abuelo, all of those are multicolor cards. So multicolor cards just go naturally later in pack three. Uh, this, some, this is something that we observed in every single set so far. Uh, it's still worth to hammer the message on. Uh, multicolor cards are uh, a good way of getting your early identity. So you want to pick them. And I actually tested that with this data set. You probably want to pick them depending on the strength, but you know, like pick three, four, five uh, to give your deck some sort of identity and get some kind of indication that the color pair might be open. But of course, late, especially with cards like Captain Storm that it really should only go into uh, blue-red decks, you don't want to pick it when you're not in the blue-red already. So that card will just go much later in the later packs because um, if you're not sitting next to someone who's drafting um, is it, you're probably gonna get it passed. So um, uh, quite obvious one. Um, one card, two cards actually that are multi uh, that are monocolored in here. Uh, Poetic Ingenuity. That's the um, enchantment that uh, whenever an artifact enters the battlefield, you make a three-one dino, and whenever a dino attacks, um, you get a treasure. It's a payoff for artifacts. It's very similar to Captain Storm uh, in what it wants to do. Um, so obviously, it will have the same kind of limitations as Captain Storm has. And the second one is Queen Base Paladin. 
uh, that's the five mana five four, uh, whether it ETBs or um, attacks, you can um, reanimate a vampire from your graveyard and you lose life equal to its casting cost. Again, this is the kind of a card that even though it's monocolored, you really want to have it in a deck that already has multiple vampires, which realistically is going to be white, black, and uh, probably that's why it goes later because people just won't put it as a vanilla five four. Uh, Rosemary T, thank you very much for the raid, by the way. Uh, I did notice that there was a bump of people in the chat. Um, then there are cards that go later in the, um, that go earlier in pack three. So you can get them in pack one, but in pack three, they become uh, rarer. And normally this was fixing, but we don't have that great of a fixing in, in this set. And yet still we have the same trend uh, that lands are going earlier in pack three. This is the moment when people realize Look, I have enough playables. I can actually pick a couple of those caves um, to, for my deck to have something to do with my mana later in the game. And we have some of the fixing ones. We have the Cult Captivating Cave, uh, Echoing Deeps, um, uh, Volatile Fault, uh, Promising Vein. Uh, these can somewhat fix you one way or another. We also have those monocolor caves, Hidden Courtyard, Hidden Volcano, Hidden Cataract, Hidden Necropolis, uh, Hidden Nursery. All of them, they go slightly a pick earlier in pack three. And we also have the signal of something that we've seen in the last set, uh, rare drafting. We see Fabrication Foundry going earlier in pack three, hit the mother load going earlier in pack three. Uh, these cards are just not good, but they are still 20 gems, or in case of Millennium Calendar, 40 gems. So if you see them later in the uh, draft, you can uh, actually pick them and, and, and get, some, get some gems from them. And uh, that's what probably people do. On top of that, we have cards that are not playable, but are uncommons that might go slightly earlier, but still quite late, like Sorcerer's Spyglass and uh, Contested Gameball. Again, under the assumption that the deck is almost done. I don't have a good pick. There's nothing I will put in my deck while I'm drafting. I might as well take an uncommon and get some Vault Progress or something. And actually, you can see that quite well in the um, uh, in the data, and especially especially un until hidden nursery, because then you sort of see a drop off that might be a bit of a bit of noise in that data. Okay, there we go. Now, this is another analysis I did last time, but last time I did it only using commons, and I actually wanted to see that using the uh, all kind of rarities, and this is basically linking um, the probability of playing a card in your deck which is at this axis here. So 100% you always put it in the deck, 0% you never put it in your deck. And then uh, also the card. And you can see that there are basically two lines in here. So there is this one line, this is commons and uncommons. And there's this line, rares. And this is an interesting observation that these things are basically two separate curves with slightly different uh, parameters. What it means is that rares will cost you when you pick them. It's not like straightforward that you pick a rare even if you pick it later, because if you pick a rare later, uh, the probability of you putting it in your deck is actually slightly lower uh, compared to the card of a different rarity that you would pick at the same spot. So say you pick a rare at uh, that has ALSA 4, you will have roughly 30% uh, of putting it in your deck. Um, the same time, the same probability, you will have a, a common with 80% uh, of chance of being put in your deck. So if you pick them at the same spot, clearly you're getting a better bargain for your deck um, by picking an uncommon and common of the similar kind of ALSA. 
But of course, rare is gems and uh, potential, you know, constructed material for you. So uh, I guess that's what people pick those kind of cards. But even if you pick like um, a playable rare, like these ones will be that most definitely playable rares. I'm not looking at win rate here, but they will probably have like, you know, 50, 56 to 60% win rate. You still only have like 70% of um, uh, playing them in your deck while you're almost guaranteed like 80, 90% probability of playing those cards in your deck when they are common and uncommon at the same kind of things. Which means that we go out of our way to pick some rares, maybe to speculate on them, but um, we are not necessarily playing them. And uh, uh, and this is something that we should uh, maybe um, start thinking a bit more about. Here, I guess that this is the signal of the super powerful uncommons that have low ALSA uh, and will be almost always played in the decks when they are picked. Again, similar, similar um, ALSA rares will only go into your deck around 50, 60% of the time. Uh, so yeah, big difference in what you're getting for your deck when you, uh, uh, when you pick a rare. Um, and I actually don't have a good mechanism why that happens. So uh, it might be that you know those rares that you pick early um, are going to be from pick one and they are more speculative because I don't believe that people stick more to the uncommons that they pick and they put them always in their deck when the rares they abandon quite easily. So there must be something in there. And I probably should redo this analysis now I'm thinking aloud. I probably should redo this analysis for pack one only and for pack three only and then see if there is a convergence or divergence of those curves and uh, in which direction does it work. But still quite an interesting um, piece. Um, there is a nice cluster of cards here also uh, that are played around 80% of the time when they are picked. Uh, and have a relatively high ALSA of six. So you would expect those cards to be played roughly, you know, 50%, but they are played around 80%. These are all caves. Um, so um, again, if you pick lands, there will probably be a higher chance of you putting them in your deck, because if you pick the lands, you probably already have an idea what you're going to be playing, and therefore they will more frequently end up in your deck. Uh, that's just some mechanism. And it probably would be worth looking at some of the cards at the lower and higher ends of those curves uh, just to see what they are. I think that the only interesting one is this one. It has ALSA of 2.3, which is reserved to like super powerful cards only, but it only is played 37% of the time in decks. Why? Um, and this is Cavern of Souls. Uh, people pick it for constructed. And you can see that actually in the data that Caverns of Souls is slightly outlier in terms of how early people pick it compared to how frequently they play it in their decks. So people don't want to spend four mythic wild cards to uh, craft them. They'd rather draft them. Um, OK. Now let's look at the highest first picks, highest win rate first picks. Um, and there is a good selection of those. Uh, but there are three of them that are really uh, weirdly uh, high, and one of and two of them are very unexpected. I would even say um, the highest first pick in the format is an unstable glyph bridge. Uh, it's a pretty strong bomb, uh, a wrath that brings a body with it, and is somewhat selective, so you can uh, make sure that this is disproportional already in the first instance. And that has 64% win rate when it's first pick. But two other cards that have an extremely high win rate are Inverted Iceberg, the two mana blue common that flips into a 6-6, six, six, and Goblin Tomb Raider. 634 and 63.3% win rate when, uh, in the decks when those cards were uh, first picked and put in, their deck, in the deck. And then you got number four, Oaken Siren at 61.1. And this for me 
is a very strong signal of people forcing the um, isn't uh, artifact decks in the early days. I'm pretty sure there were some really strong players in 17 lands that were so stuck on forcing the uh, is it deck that um, they could actually produce enough data to impact it. Because first of all, um, only someone that wants to force uh, an artifact deck will first pick a Tomb Raider or Inverted Iceberg. Um, there is few packs, if you would be drafting the hard way, where you would, uh, when Inverted Iceberg or Tomb Raider would be the strongest card in the pack. Um, However, there was a significant. I only looked at the data, the data with um, at least you know a hundred games uh, of a sample size, which is not amazingly huge, but it's something. Hello, Mr. Kitty Cat. What do you want from me? Yes, you think I'm talking to you, but I'm not. Now, please move to your place. You've had food, you've had scratches, and I'm not buying any of it. This is the kind of conditions I have to work in. Um, and Oak and Siren is a sort of confirmation of that. This is another probably signal of people trying to really force uh, is it artifact decks. Um, so yeah, um, I think that because no one who is drafting the hard way will first pick those cards, and only people who force them will first pick them, and they have such a high win rate when they were first picked, it shows to me that forcing is it at least in large chunk of the drafts was extremely successful a strategy um, in the first couple of weeks. I don't know if it still works, but can you imagine it has a higher win rate than first picking Bonehorde Dracosaur, which obviously is uh, a better card. Another card that we have there is Charter Course, which would fit into the, one of those uh, aggressive blue decks. Um, apart from that, what we have is Kitesail Larsenist, uh, Breaches Eager Pillager, Careening Minecart, which is quite surprising because the card doesn't have that high of, uh, of a win rate uh, on its own. Again, probably the signal from the first days uh, when it was extremely successful because you could just get such busted uh, is it cards that even um, the careening mine card was carried by them. And uh, then we have Diamond Pickaxe, same kind of situation. Uh, Zoetic Glyph, uh, this one should be first picked, but you know, still probably a signal of people forcing uh, uh, this kind of deck. Um, Vanguard of the Rose and Warden of the Inner Sky, which is quite surprising because uh, neither uh, Warden of the Inner Sky maybe is not a surprise, but Vanguard of the Rose is quite surprising as this card is not particularly powerful. But still, um, uh, I guess it was only first picked by people who had a plan for it and uh, they executed this plan. And then we have like an, an actual bombs in Sanguine Evangelist and um, a Geological Appraiser, which uh, which is another good card that you can just put in any kind of is it Boros deck. So these were the ones that were really the strongest um, uh, first picks. And um, just to take a look at it, um, I will need to find something. Goblin Tomb Raider, was it? Goblin Tomb Raider. Um, the win rate of Goblin Tomb Raider when it was picked later in the pack drops significantly. So, you know, already when it was second picked, uh, third pick, it, the win rate goes down to like 57%. And um, uh, inverted Iceberg, same thing. Uh, it was having a 63% win rate as a first pick, uh, but uh, only like 56, 57% uh, when it was picked later in the, in the pack. And when I looked at the win rates uh, later in the pack, um, I'm not going to make any graphs of that because that was too much selective, but I can uh, actually mention it. Um, one card that um, sprang out on me and I'm panically looking for it because I forgot, obviously, its name. Um, a Kinjali Dawnrunner. 
That was a car that had pretty low win rate when it was picked in the first three picks. Um, it had around 55, 54% win rate when it was picked then. But if it was picked later, it actually had a high win rate of around 57, 60% even in picks four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Um, so this is the kind of a car that you don't want to first pick. You don't want to maybe force around it. But if you see it later, uh, it actually is sort of a signal that white is open if you see it uh, past pack pick four. And, and, and probably this is the good kind of um, uh, indicator card for, uh, for what you want to be uh, drafting if you see it later. OK. Now, in terms of the low win rate uh, picks, uh, worst card to pick is Mischievous Pup. That card was pretty much hyped uh, in the preview season. Uh, including by me. Uh, I thought it was going to be much better, but it turns out that there's just not enough creatures that are worth saving from it. And um, you definitely don't want to be, you know, keeping three mana open um, um, and not doing anything with it. So um, that only had like 44% win rate. But then we have a whole collection of a category of cards. Um, we have Akawali, the Seating Tower. That's the Golgari uh, signpost uncommon. We have Amalia Benavides Aguirre. Um, that's the uh, Ors of Rare. Um, that's whenever you gain life, you explore and, and construct it. It can become 2020 and, and explode the whole table. Deep Root Pilgrimage. That's the thing whenever you tap a Merfolk, you make a Merfolk. Uh, Gisha Sun's Avatar, uh, the uh, Naya colored uh, dinosaur. Um, um, then you have Grasping Shadows, so called Viper. These are two black cards, but I, they, they are not, I think, in, in the same category. But you have the Myco Tyrant, um, uh, which is a Golgari mythic that uh, makes some funguses and, and, and grows bigger as they uh, get created. Uh, Matsalantli, uh, the Great Door, that's a sort of uh, ramaging uh, artifact. And Abuelo's Awakening, um, and that's a reanimation for uh, uh, in white. And all those cards apart from the so-called Viper and the Gasp Grasping Shadows, I think have one thing in common, and that's these are sort of lower-graded build-arounds in this format. And um, the thing with those is that common knowledge is if you have those kind of weird, rare build-arounds, first pick them and build around them, and you'll get somewhere. But it seems like in this format, it was not, um, uh, it was not the case with those cards, at least. Uh, they seem to have a very low win rate when they were first picked and built around. And actually, I think that this is a particular thing for LCI that um, those build arounds come together so rarely that um, you picked it, you tried to build it, and often ended up with a mess of a deck. But there is another thing in here. It's frequently that it's lower win rate players that will fall into the traps of those uh, B-graded uh, build arounds. Uh, top players they are focused on winning. And because they are focused on winning, they will rather pick a good white common over those uh, risky kind of build arounds. So part of that low win rate of those cards is because it's being, they are being played by uh, lower win rate players and, and, and that sort of drops the, the power of them. I mean, so-called Viper might count as one of those cards because it's sort of probably people try to build around or animator when they first pick this card. Um, and also, interestingly, Join the Dead, um, uh, quite a low win rate first pick. Uh, another card that disappoints, mainly because um, giving minus five, minus five to a one one flyer for one mana is not a great deal. And this is a thing that you had to do quite a lot with this card in this format. So you might want to play it in your deck. You might even want to have two or three of those. You just don't want to waste your first pick to pick them. You might 
only go into black when uh, you see that black is open and you see those pick five or pick six or something like that. And again, I can go to the data that I'm not showing you, but um, uh, the win rate of join the dead increases the later you pick it. So uh, if you picked it on, in, in your pick uh, eight, uh, the decks that pick join the dead as a pick eight in the first pack already have a 57% win rate, so uh, much better. Uh, this is a card that you want to be picking a bit later. Now I'm lost. Oh, now I'm found again. Not completely. There we go. Now I found myself. Okay. So there is also, as always, a concern about wheeling in a format. And every format, I do the same curve just to show that the curve still works. This is the ALSA to probability of wheeling uh, a card in, in, uh, when you open it, pack one, pick one. Uh, and this is ALSA for the pack one only specific. Uh, and you get this beautiful curve, uh, sort of sigmoid in its shape. Uh, this time we had basic lands in the pack. And because we have basic lands in the pack, we get this card that has a very, very uh, high ALSA of 11 because they will almost always be picked uh, as the last pick. So you will uh, almost always see them very late. Uh, but yeah, uh, it shows you that the curve continues as you would expect in a sigmoidal shape. And by sigmoidal, it starts flat, then it starts going steep, and then it starts shallowing out, and then it goes back to flat. That's the sigmoidal shape uh, of, of a curve, if you, if you need to know it. Um, but because this curve is so predictable across the formats, it means that uh, with some format specifics taken into account, like for example, in this set, we have additional card in the pack, uh, which might at least in some cases influence um, the pick order, because some of those cards will be playable, that will be the caves. Um, but taking all those things into account, you can still sort of uh, quite well estimate uh, from ALSA of the card, how often it will wheel. So for example, a card of ALSA with ALSA of four, it will wheel roughly like 13% of the time. If ALSA is six, it will wheel roughly 45% of the time. If ALSA is seven, it will wheel roughly 65% of the time. And you can basically access that, but you can, when I'm going to put this thing on YouTube, you can just look through that curve. Or if you're my patron and you have access to the slides, you can just go to the slides and just find your stuff um, uh, quite easily on, on that curve. Uh, and estimate the probability of a card wheeling. And then based on the probability of wheeling, you can adjust your strategy of drafting because I think that this is one of the superpower skills that you have as a drafter, knowing how uh, likely it is that something wheels. It allows you to um, it allows you to plan the draft in such a way that you open a pack, you pick something, and you give yourself a good chance of picking a second card from the same pack uh, with predicted uh, with predicted um, frequency. And this will be useful if you have an even powered card a pack. So there's nothing like outstanding and you have maybe four different um, cards that you can select from. And one of them comes with another card that might wheel quite frequently. And this is the, the card that you probably want to try wheeling. Um, if it wheels, you're a winner because you know that um, you got the card that you wanted. If it doesn't wheel, you got a very important information because you know that the particular card that you were planning to wheel and you knew that it's got a good chance of wheeling did not wheel. So there must be someone at least uh, in the pod that might be interested in the similar plan as you were uh, while you were doing your pick one. Of course, that plan might have changed since then, but at least that information stays uh, and you know what happened there. So I uh, 
put four different categories of cards that um, can be wheeled uh, with some frequency and um, based on how likely or unlikely it is to happen, uh, they are in different categories. The first one is the long shot wheel targets and I picked arbitrarily uh, out of multiple cards that are in the range of wheeling around 10% of the time. I picked three that I think are interesting. One is Master Guide's Mural. Um, this is the kind of a card that you probably want to uh, try wheeling. Um, you might want to pick something better, like a 1-1 flyer or uh, or something aggressive or, or defensive in white, um, and hope that this wheels. If it wheels, you got a benefit. It will happen once out of every 10 times that you try it, but um, it's worth it because you probably don't want to go first pick Master Guide Mural. You probably want to pick something better. It's nice to know that 10% of the time it's going to wheel. The other card, Zoetic Glyph, you should probably always pick it. It's always going to be the best card in the pack, um, but it still wheels 10% of the time. And while you probably will never use that ability because you will pick the Glyph or you should pick the Glyph, and I encourage you to pick the Glyph on your pick one, pack one, um, you might see you know, 15 to 20% of the time uh, a Glyph still there uh, at pick eight. And hopefully that number is going down as we speak, but um, people just uh, didn't get convinced by the glyph so far. So you might still expect to see it a bit later than, than the card should be. Because honestly, you should never be seeing it uh, wheeling ever. I can't believe that there is no blue drafter on the pod. Um, and the card that is probably the most important of those is Poison Dart Frog. This card is particularly important when you're drafting dinos, but of course, to start drafting dinos, you need to start drafting dinos. You probably don't want to first pick the poison dart frog without any dinos in your pool. So this is a great feeler for you. If you open a pack with Isquint or um, or some of the rare dinosaurs that are pretty good, or even the belligerent yearling, uh, the two mana three two uncommon, uh, you might pick this and send the poison dart frog on a trip around the table. If it comes back, this is probably your signal that yes, you should be able to get your dinosaur deck because green is sufficiently open for the frog to uh, to wheel. And you know, uh, if there are other green cards in the pack, I don't know. There is the Huatli's uh, final strike, for example. Uh, maybe that was picked, but that's good for you because frog is much more important for your dinosaur dog than the Huatli's uh, final strike, uh, because your problem is ramping, and later that frog very often converts as a as a as a kill spell for, for a flyer of the opponent and flyer is your weak spot. Flyers is your weak spot when you're playing dinosaurs. So yeah, uh, a really neat target for wheeling uh, in, in the poison dart frog. Then we have the gamble wheel targets. And these are the cards that wheel around 30% of the time. So you are not guaranteed that they are gonna wheel, but you have like a decent chance. So maybe sometimes you want to pick something weaker. Let's say you open a pack and there is a miner's guide wing, which in my opinion is a better card of the two and the four mana 3-2 that makes a 1-1 one, one flyer. This flyer, the 3-2 flyer is picked much highly, much more higher than uh, than the guide wing. So picking the Altec Cloud Guard, the 3-2, is a good idea because you have 33% odds of, of wheeling the miner's guide wing. Um, and you probably have like 5% chance of, uh, I can actually check it. Just give me a second. Um, I, I have all the numbers uh, somewhere. Um, what is the wheeling probability of the Altec? Altec. Oh, of course, of course I typoed. 
of the cloud guard. No, it's still 12%, uh, but much lower chance. It's at the same kind of level as the poison dart frog. Um, so um, you have a better chance of uh, wheeling the guide wing. So you might as well pick the three two and send the uh, uh, and send the guide wing on a trip around the table. And if it comes back, you know that white is open at least in some way. One way it can be that it's actually quite open, and the other way it can be that uh, it's not that open, but people are drafting the wrong cards, and therefore you're in a good position. You can draft white no problem because they will not pick the cards that you're uh, most interested in. Another card, Plundering Pirate. Uh, that one has around 27% wheel rate. Um, solid card and multiple archetypes, makes an artifact, is a pirate, uh, ramps your dinosaurs, so that can be playable also there, um, uh, and stops the ground offensive quite well. So um, you want to have it in your deck, you obviously don't want to first pick it, but again, uh, if you have a red card or if you have a dino uh, in the first pack uh, that you are willing to take, you should take into account that you have a good 30% chance of winning the Plundering Pirate. And another one is uh, Armored Kin Color. This one wheels 35% of the time. And again, if you have a good uncommon dinosaur and another good uncommon in a different color, you might want to gamble on the uh, other good dinosaur and wheel the Kin Color and, and again, get the double whammy of having uh, a cheap dinosaur. Now, 35% of the time it will wheel, uh, which is not a guarantee and obviously you should you should think about the quality of the pack if it's really poor and this is the only really good card in there, maybe it will not wheel. But if there are a couple of good white, red, um, uh, blue cards, you can just hope that it comes back to you. And again, good information if it doesn't, especially if you're trying to be in the dinosaur deck, you know that there is a second dinosaur um, drafter on the table most likely. Uh, then there are the 50%, what I call the coin flip wheel targets. Uh, and uh, here we have our two amazing first picks in Inverted Iceberg and Goblin Tomb Rider. This is probably one of the reasons why this deck was so good, because both of those cards are particularly strong and they still wheel 50% of the time. People don't draft them high enough, so is it is overly open and people were abusing that strategy. That's why we saw this weird data that, uh, that is hard to explain in a different way. And we also see Atali's Favor, which wheels like 55% of the time. I think that this card is slightly overrated. In a way, it's not a bad card, it's still quite good, but part of its win rate is because it was disproportionately played by uh, high win rate players. So actually, I think it's, if we would force 100 people of different ability to play with it, the win rate of the card would be lower than it is right now. Um, so I think that this one has artificially elevated win rate. It's something that happened in um, some sets ago. I think it was in the Dungeons and Dragons set when uh, NCAA, one of the prolific streamers and well-known forcers of aggro decks, uh, played, it was Iron Golem, I think, like a 5-3 Vigilance with has to attack every turn if possible. And it had a very high win rate in the first days, but it turns out that this high win rate was exclusively elevated by one player forcing the card and, and having good result because that particular player can win with almost anything. So um, one player can make a difference in, in the data when there are small numbers. And here, I think, because Atali's favor got the hype, lots of invested players overplayed it and got good results with it because they are good players and because they were forcing, you know, Izzet and, um, um, and Boros and getting really amazing results with Atali's favor. Like, for example, it had actually quite a low win rate in uh, dinosaur decks. And um, yeah, that's probably because, you know, it, it will never find anything useful in dinosaur deck unless you hit the Kim color or something. 
but most of the time you play Adali's favor and you get like a frog or combat trick or something. Okay. And then we have the sure wheel targets. And that's around 70% chance of wheeling. I mean, it's as good as it's as good as you can actually count on it. And here we have two important cards, Cogwork Wrestler, uh, uh, also known as Pogwork Wrestler, one mana, one, two, flash, gives minus two, minus O until end of turn to target creature and opponent controls, instant uh, artifact trigger, uh, lots of things that can be done with it, wins every combat somehow, um, uh, makes attacking with your two, two double striker a nightmare because you, have to think very hard if you do that into open one blue mana, which you always have because there's always the siren looming there with the one blue mana open for some reason. It doesn't give colorless. Um, and it wheels 70% of the time. So this is the kind of a card that you can first pick something strong and in blue or white or red and hope for the Cogwork Wrestler to wheel. You pick Captain Storm first pick, no problem. Cogwork Wrestler will wheel. That's exactly the card you want to do. 70% of the time it will happen. And um, if it doesn't, then you definitely know that someone in the pod is in the know and is in your color, so, which is also a useful piece of information for you. Another card, the Construction Hammer. Uh, this is, a, as Cogwork Wrestler is to Artifact Synergy decks, the Construction Hammer is the best friend of the 1-1 Flyers in this format. And this also will 70% of the time. So you don't need to prioritize it. Um, you can get it late. And um, just checking um, where I'm lost, Deconstruction Hammer. It actually uh, has a much higher win rate when you pick it late. So you don't want to pick it, um, you don't want to pick it earlier than, you know, pack one, pick eight uh, for the best results. That's when it has like higher win rate. Uh, if you pick it the second half of the pack, it has the win rate of around 57%. If you pick it earlier, it can go down to like 54, 55. So you don't want to over pick it overly early because uh, you'd rather have um, uh, other good cards then and hope that the construction cameras will come to you later in the draft. So yeah, uh, this is the sort of selection of the cards that are wheeling, but um, a good part of this analysis is that you can do a bunch of it yourself. You can just go to this graph. And again, you can go to the YouTube video, pause it on the graph. If you really want to have um, better access to it, again, as a patron, you get access to the, uh, to the slides. So you can just click on the slides and copy the graph and use it uh, at, your, at your leisure. If you want a generic one, there is an MTGA zone article that I made on wheeling that has this sort of generic curve. It might be slightly off compared to this one by 2% here and there, but it should be still okay. And now we can go to the second part of the seminar, the drafting the right way. And obviously, drafting the right way is a play on drafting the hard way from Ben Stark. And it's not a play, really, because it is an important addition to it, I guess. Um, drafting the hard way is a theory article from years ago. I, I don't know the sets that uh, Ben is writing about. It's gate crash or something. Um, ages ago, um, on how to draft uh, according to Ben Stark. And it's been an extremely influential piece of uh, limited content. If possibly together with Frank Carsten's uh, mana-based building article, um, this is probably the thing. And maybe, you know, like some all-time episodes of limited resources with like explaining what bread is and stuff like that. This is probably one of the most seminal pieces of limited content that you will ever find. And the basic idea behind it is that um, in a draft, in the olden draft, in the old sets, you'll be rewarded by finding the right lane. Because if you find the right lane, 
sacrificing some picks in order to find an open lane is worth it because you will be rewarded by um, uh, finding that lane. And as I said, it's one of the most important pieces of limited content that's ever been written. But I think the design of the sets changed a bit. That's not to say that drafting the hard way is not the um, good strategy, but I think that it is at its extremes detrimental to the win rates of the players. Because by weaving and trying to find the lane, you will often miss out on situations when something is just open and you just go into it and you crash it and you pick everything that is put in your way uh, that is fitting to that particular color. Uh, basically forcing it or at least drafting with preferences because that's the second concept. Uh, that's drafting with preferences. And here I have an excerpt of uh, Kyle Rose, Ham TV, explaining uh, uh, the topic. I'm just going to read it out for the podcast people. Like, Hello, I have a lot of thoughts on the subject. Shut up, dog. Uh, this may not come are perfect, but I'll try to go over some stuff. I will not try to justify this draft or any picks or anything like it. In my theory that there is the best deck and I try to force it, sometimes I will fail. This in theory will be more than made up online until about two weeks ago when the queues started to slow down. Drafting there is totally different than drafting on Arena. Decks on Arena are way better since the draft tables are filled with novices. This leads to a few more reasons to try to draft the best archetype. One of these is that good cards of all archetypes get passed around more than they should on Arena and in general you will wind up with a playable deck of anything you set your mind to draft. Also, signals are extremely unreliable on Arena, especially in early packs. Giving up your first two or three picks because you think you're getting a different signal is devastating when people are basically picking the cards based on the artwork, rarity, or whatever else they decide at the time. If you see something 8, 9, 10 pick, this is a much more likely to be an actual signal, but it's also likely to be too late. And this is perfect description of what I'm thinking about. So Ham is basically saying that there are good color pairs, and on Arena especially, you will be able to get onto those color pairs a lot of the time. And even if you don't, you will lose some drafts. There will be train wreck. doesn't matter. Uh, the, the, the amount you win by, by forcing a good color pair is just going to overtake it. Um, and of course, Ham is a genius drafter, which means that he can sort of do that kind of thing. I wouldn't recommend forcing to uh, beginners because uh, that leads to overforcing, and overforcing will also hurt you. And this is not only the concept of Ham. Um, there was um, Ryan Sachs' article, and he had a very good, I think, episode number 26 of uh, Lords of Limited. Absolutely worth re-listening to that. It's maximizing for your own preferences and drafting with preferences, as opposed to drafting the hard way. And this shows that drafting the hard way, as explained by Ben Stark, and I know that there are subtleties in Ben explained and uh, added to that theory quite a lot of times, but drafting the hard ways, as is understood by people very frequently, means that you should be open to any color combination. And this is a problem because then you run into the trouble when um, you have better or worse color pairs in a particular uh, format, you will end up being likely to end up in those weaker color pairs. Why? Because they will be more open. And because they're more open, you are going to start drafting them because you draft the hard way, which means that you look for the open path and more often than not, the weak path is going to be the one that's open. And that's where the moment that the moment when drafting with preferences comes in and you say, look, I am drafting sort of the hard way, but I do have my preferences. Uh, in this format, it will be perfect to explain. Um, I am 
planning to be on Izzet, and that's going to be my starting preference, uh, I'm going to be likely to pick a blue, red, or white card in my first pick. And then if I see that this is cut, then I might weave to another path because I see that there is no chance of me getting a decent Izzet deck. But my first choice is going to be Izzet. Therefore, I'm going to assign a higher weight to those Izzet cards than to equal quality even cards in, in, in different color combinations. Um, and yeah, again, uh, I would highly recommend reading this article and listening to the podcast that Ryan did with um, with Lords of Limited. It's great content and um, and a great food for thought. And same, reading the Drafting the Hardway article by Ben Stark and listening to, he did a couple of podcasts on that as well. Uh, very important to get the basic kind of uh, theory on that. So basically my idea here comes in and that was that there must be a right mixture of preferences and flexibility. Um, and to use the ex extreme examples, if you always force, you will, if you force the right thing, because of course there can be a disaster strategy of uh, always forcing the very bad deck and then you're both losing and uh, also ending with a train wreck version of a bad deck, which is a double train wreck, I guess. Um, but if you always force, you will frequently end up with a train wreck. Um, and, um, and you also are going to trophy quite a lot because if it's open, you just get into the strongest archetype, you force it, your open path, or at least modestly open, uh, you're going to get a great deck. Then there is an, another extreme example. You always weave till very late. This means that you all probably will end up most of the time with a decent deck because you will in the end find that open lane, but at the same time, you will all you will frequently miss on the opportunity of something being open from first pick because you pick the first pick, strongest card, second pick, strongest card. Not a big chance that it's going to be in the same color. Third pick, strongest card, very unlikely that it's going to be coherent. Fourth, fifth pick. So you're going to end up like at least cards of three, four colors until pick seven or something. Then you can start picking your color. Um, so if you always weave, you might miss out on something because you sacrifice those early picks uh, where you could have had close power card uh, in the in the color that you started with. Um, but of course, the problem with my idea is that it's simple, but how do I figure out what is the right amount of having preference and the right amount of having flexibility, right? Now, I told you that I was always curious about one particular. I told you in the uh, beginning, in the preamble, that I was always having this idea that there is something about trophy rate that bothers me. And it bothered me very strongly for many, many months. And I always was thinking about it. I actually had it lined up. And what bothered me is that people that have same win rates have sometimes very different trophy rates. And I was thinking about it, like, why would it be so? And what would the reason for that be? And how to maybe communicate it better? Because I had a good feeling of what, what it might be. I even you know, contacted a couple of players that had uh, biggest disproportion between the uh, um, win rates uh, and trophy rates that they had. So they had the same win rate, but they had very different uh, trophy rates. Uh, and I tried maybe to look at their personal data and 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 come from there, but it never never worked out. So um, um, so I abandoned the idea. But I still was continuously obsessed by the difference because obviously it means that. People that have high trophy rates, they have a lot of 7-0s and a lot of um, 0-3s. And people that have low trophy rates, they win a lot, but they never go past that 5-3-6-3, and they have lots of those 5-3-6-3s, but they never have like 7-Xs. 
Um, and then variance, of course, will explain something. But when we're looking at the very large data sets, and um, large data sets, it's all-time leaderboard, for example, is a perfect data set for that, those differences should be quite minimal. Um, and we still see them. So there is clearly something there that is actual signal, not only, um, uh, not only noise. So I had this Eureka moment, and I was talking about it in the preamble, of course. Uh, I was looking at the pasta pirate data. Um, and when I agreed, when I invited the pasta pirate to, uh, to be my guest uh, last year to look at uh, his personal data, I calculated that he trophies more than the win rate would suggest. Because I was curious about, uh, I saw that he's got lots of trophy decks, and of course he plays a lot. But I also sort of looked at people with similar win rates, and they all had lower win rate, uh, trophy rate than he did. And then my hypothesis was that I think that he just forces a lot, because that would explain it. And then it sort of came back to me like, oh, yeah, he forces a lot. He's got a high trophy rate compared to his win rate. Therefore, if I look at the whole data set, um, if I confirm my hypothesis, first of all, that he forces a lot, uh, and then I can actually look at the um, uh, leaderboard data and, and compare it to other people, I can uh, actually start working on something. And um, well, first graph, this is the number of games that Pasta Pirate played with different color combinations in, uh, uh, in Wilds of Eldraine. And I think that sort of confirms that he does force a lot. Um, looking at the graph, uh, he has 946 games with uh, uh, Rakdos decks. And the second most played archetype he played was uh, Celestia with 105 games. So <laughs> massive, massive forcing. I think all the other archetypes uh, have fewer games than just um, just Rakdos. So over 50%, probably over over 60, 70% of the games were played in, in Rakdos, uh, uh, Rakdos decks. So yeah, definitely. And he admitted this as much. Um, he always started the draft knowing that he's going to be in Rakdos, and most of the time he was, except for some extreme cases. Wouldn't be surprised if most of the other things are stipulation drafts or something. So there goes my first hypothesis of the, um, of the um, first confirmation of the hypothesis that indeed my feeling that he will have a higher trophy rate because he forced a lot uh, is correct. And then I just plotted all the uh, win rates and trophy rates of the top 500 all-time leaderboard um, on uh, 17 lands. And there is this uh, beautiful um, uh, trend line for uh, where should you be. And here comes the idea that every dot below that line means that players who are in question, those dots represent people. Let's remember about it. Uh, these players probably dirtle too much. They draft too hard. They weave too much. They uh, don't, um, they sometimes should force more. And all the players that are above the line are the players that force a lot and they have more trophies. But if they played a bit, maybe a bit more flexibly, their win rate should go up. And this is the idea. This is, this is where the usefulness of this idea comes. Uh, if you do that for your own data and if you compare yourself to that curve and you see where you end up and you find that you are actually below the curve, um, very likely you should be drafting a bit more with preferences and find a bit more of the preference. Like for instance, this, this, this dot here, for the people in the know, this is Greg Hatch, uh, very high trophy rate compared to his win rate, which is also a very high win rate. I mean, we're talking about a player with 65% win rate, but 
Um, it seems to me he's the type of a player that forces quite a lot. Uh, and it would be nice to get a personal uh, recognition of that fact and uh, uh, admission of his own forcing behavior. Um, and everyone can plot it. It's uh, uh, available in the uh, leaderboard data. So there is no hiding now, uh, now that the cat is out of the bag. Um, and probably these players here, I don't know who, who they are, uh, but uh, they look like they have a much lower trophy rate that, um, than their um, win rate would suggest. So at 57% win rate, you would expect the trophy like 17% of the time, they do 12% of the time. So there is an improvement possible there, in my opinion, if they would uh, try to be more assertive in their drafting and try to be have more preference. And I think that the effect of you changing your behavior would be uh, um, would be dramatic in terms of trophy and also um, positive in terms of win rate. So I'm my hypothesis is, and this is something that I cannot confirm yet, but if these two players would um, change their drafting patterns and give themselves a bit more, um, uh, train themselves more to be more forcing the better card combinations and uh, um, dirtle a bit less during the draft, I think that their draft win trophy rate would go up to where it should be, so around uh, 70%, but also at the same time, their win rate would slightly increase. So they should end up not here at 57, but maybe at 59, and then go to around 20% win rate. So this is the kind of improvement I'm foreseeing for people who will adjust their behavior. And we're talking about extreme cases here, but if you're just slightly below that line, you should still improve your trophy rate by like two, 3% and, uh, and maybe your win rate by 1% or something. So um, I think there are rewards in analyzing yourself from that aspect. So uh, I think that a good homework for people who are in this seminar would be to go to your 17 lens data, check your all-time win rate, all-time trophy rate, plot it against this curve. I'm going to write it up for mtgzone.com. So uh, there will be an article, you can just click it and you will have this curve there, but you can also plot it yourself if you really want to. Uh, try to find yourself and then, um, um, and, then, um, and then try to figure it out. Is dirtling necessary to shift the meta and try new combinations of card? Um, I think that you don't need to dirtle to find new combinations of card. I think by dirtling, I mean picking cards you know you're not going to be playing. Um, by dirtling, I mean uh, it's pack one, pick eight, and you're still like having four colors open and you don't know which path is open and, and, and you're trying to find your path. Uh, this is what I mean by dirtling. I mean dirtling in draft, not dirtling in, in the gameplay. Uh, you can draft the dirtly deck that dirtles during the game. That's a different story altogether. I'm talking about dirtling during your picks. Um, I can make also the curve for best of three players, Rosemary T. Uh, good suggestion. I will put it also in the article so you can use it um, for yourself. Um, so yeah, uh, I guess that um, people who are on the under the curve uh, would be benefited from uh, from maybe fixing how you draft a bit early um, and uh, and having stronger preferences. Um, so yeah, if you trophy more than win rate suggests, you probably force too much. If you trophy less than win rate suggests, you probably dirtle too much in the draft, not in the game. That's important to uh, distinguish. Uh, there are, I think, alternative possibilities that are somewhat linked. Um, high win rate and low trophy rate can have other explanations at least. I didn't find a good explanation for, um, um, for uh, trophy rate that is uh, way higher than you would expect than, than, than forcing uh, too much. Um, one explanation is that you are a good magic player, but you need to improve your draft skills. 
that doesn't necessarily mean that you dirtle, but um, it, it means that maybe you um, you have wrong pick order, for example. You find the lanes right, but you just don't get good cards because you pick the bad cards and put them in your deck. Uh, this is uh, frequently for some players that move from construct towards limited. It's about normal. I think that those things are easy to um, to uh, learn away uh, as a bad habit. And the second option is that you are drafting the wrong colors. Um, and that would mean that you might have preferences, but they're wrong preferences. Uh, for example, you, for some weird reason, want to draft Golgari all the time in, in, in this format. You're just going to have a lower trophy rate, even if you are drafting perfectly and perfectly open, because your preference is just um, assigned to a wrong color. So you're drafting the right mixture of preference and, um, and, and hard way, but your preferences are wrong. So yeah, that's another explanation that I can find for that. Okay. Um, yeah, and here we have actionable advice and homeworks, uh, that new section of my seminar. Um, I think if you are more of a dirtling or, or think if you are more of a dirtling or a forcing drafter, this is a good exercise to do before you check your numbers. Think where you find yourself. Then once you have that thought, explore your all-time win uh, rate and trophy rate. And then you can check if you're above or below below the trend line. Um, uh, again, you can go back to the seminar when it's on YouTube or uh, on Twitch or, or when the article is coming out. And then see if it matches your expectations. Um, if it matches your expectations, um, that's good because at least you know what's wrong. And now you also have numbers to show that uh, what, what's wrong. And you have potential um, uh, targets for your self-improvement, as I said. Uh, if you are going to uh, you know, fix it in some way um, over a long time, your, your trophy rate is going to go up, but also your win rate should go slightly up if you adjust it. Um, so yeah, this is the homework part. And I think with that, we can end the seminar. Uh, obviously, thanks to the uh, 70 Lance team, nothing would be possible without them. Um, again, we're super grateful to have this data. Uh, I'd like to thank, uh, fake Thank fake Jake Brown also for um, for the eternal support that he gives to me uh, releasing it in the podcast version. And I am not the only one person that uh, uh, owes a lot of gratitude to uh, fake Jake uh, for, for all the help that he's doing to the community. Um, I would like to thank Asesco and Mana Junkie for the music that we're using in the podcast. And thanks to my patrons, um, especially uh, uh, Brian Damien, who is the new one for this week. But, uh, you know, uh, next next week it might be you. Um, also, this is something that um, is pretty new. I also have a Discord now, uh, also with the zone for the patrons, but also for everyone else. Uh, so I'm going to put links in the description for you to join um, uh, if you are interested in talking about data or seeing my attempts of making a quiche uh, and uh, my cat's attempts of making my life miserable. Uh, all of those things will be available in that zone. And with that, I'll see you next week when we have a surprise guest and a non-surprise topic. You can figure it out if you know anything about the calendar of magic. See you then.